All right, so the windows of opportunity grow. You may say Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, or you may sing it. All right, you have your choice. I usually start the meeting <coughs> with a question for everyone, but uh, this time I'm just going to ask the question to my son, Joey. Have a seat, Joey. <laughs> Joey, would you like to play on a basketball team? Yes. All right. Why? Because it's fun. Okay. Good. Now, does it have anything to do with this? Yes. What does it have to do with that? Anything to do with like this thing over here? <laughs> winning, yeah, you like winning. Yeah, that's good. I think we all like winning. We're also all in something that the passage today calls a race, which means we all have the opportunity to win. Uh, let's go ahead and, and read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Good. Uh, the word I, I picked on here is race. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. One of the advantages of when preaching on just two verses is it gives you more time to look at the Greek or whatever the original language is in the scripture. And I like uh, this one. So the Greek word that's translated race here is agon, which is uh, properly a place of assembly um, uh, and by implication a contest held there. So it would be maybe the equivalent word of an arena today, right? And uh, usually when you think of arena, you think about a race that's being run there or some other competition, right? It doesn't actually have to be a running race. In fact, in the scripture, this is the only place where this word is translated a race, it's either, it usually translated as a conflict, a contention, or a fight, right? Some sort of a sporting event. So basketball could be a good example of the reason you'd be going there. Uh, here it's translated race, probably because it says, let us run the race, or let us run the competition, or the event that's coming. And so the word race is being used, but it can certainly apply to any kind of, um, of, of, of game or struggle or event in which you really are straining yourself to win, right? That's perhaps the chief thought here, an event in which you're straining yourself to win. There's other ways in which I, I think this can be thought of as a race. And now we're thinking of, of what, what is it applied for, to, what, what kind of a race is the race that is set before us? Well, in the context, 
of chapter 11, we have to say this is the race of faith. So Don has, has taken us through the last five weeks through Hebrews 11, and we got to see all these competitors, right? It started with, uh, with Abel, right, an offering by faith to God a sacrifice, and we went on to Noah, who built an ark, and Abraham, and Moses, and we got to see all these heroes of the faith who, who had an opportunity to believe in God against the pressures of the world, against some sort of difficulty in their life, and they strived, and they succeeded, and they won, and they were able to demonstrate their faith, right? That was the race, that is the race of faith, and that's the race we have before us today. Now, it doesn't have to be some great and dramatic event that you do. Very often we associate this with uh, great exploits like we see in the Old Testament, but something as simple as, uh, as loving your wife, right, could be winning the race if you're doing it by faith, right? If it goes against the flesh, if it goes against some circumstances in my life, and yet I believe that is what God wants me to do, and I do it because of it, because I believe in God, that is a victory in faith, right? It's something that I've done. Same thing with a wife submitting herself to her husband or parents loving their children and raising them to serve the Lord. It's an act of faith, right? Children obeying their parents can <laughs> be an act of faith, right? So it could be a very ordinary act of faith or it can be extraordinary, being feeling called, called by God to the mission field in the Amazon, Right? We would look at that as more of an extraordinary, and yet it's just a step of faith if you believe that that is God's will to you, if you, if you sense God's leading you in yet that direction. Just yet another act of faith. I was thinking of other ways in which this race of faith or fight of faith can be uh, compared to um, a game or an event or a competition. Uh, it's watched. It's being watched, right? You are being watched to see how you're doing. It's being watched by men. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So as you choose to obey God and you're stepping by faith and you're doing what God wants you to do, you're being watched by the world around you. And as a result, you become light, right? And they glorify God because of you. People can come into knowledge of the Lord Jesus by looking at your life and seeing the evidence of God in your life. You're being watched. You're being watched by angels. Paul says this in Ephesians 3, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's speaking about angels. Angels are watching you. 
and the learning through you, the manifold wisdom of God. You're being watched. Finally, you're being watched by God himself, our heavenly Father who delights in his children. I have a clip to show you. And now in slow-mo, because I like it so much. Why do I like watching that clip so much? My child is in. <laughs> right? I enjoy watching her do well. Right? In, a, in, a, in, a, in a sport that I can appreciate. I don't know how many of you played soccer, but I played soccer growing up. And so, you know, I appreciate the finery of soccer. And so I see my child doing well, and I really appreciate it. And the same way God appreciates the finery of faith. Right? This, that's what warms God's heart, to see faith in his children. And so God is the one who watches you. Right, and delights at every act of faith that you do. So that is the race of faith we want to talk about today. I should add a, a few things about it. Uh, it is victorious, right? Our race is victorious because we have the right captain, the Lord Jesus, who uh, promised that he will build his church. It is rewarded by God. God will reward us for it. He says, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say, I shall, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So here there's, there's another fellow believer you see, and you sense a need. He is thirsty. And you do just as small of an act as getting a cup of cold water and you're giving it to him, what? By faith, because you believe that's what God wants you to do. And Jesus is saying, assuredly, that person will not lose his reward. Right? So he's taking the smallest act of faith. God is watching everything we do. And it's God's desire to reward us. Right? Right? It's not uh, our idea that God should reward us. We don't come clamoring for the reward. But it's God's intent as he sees every act of faith. He wants to reward it. Right? So it's not limited like some races, you know, there's one, two, three, gold, silver, bronze, medal, and there runs out the reward. Right? Everybody who lives a life of faith will be rewarded by God for every act you do. Unbelievable. But that's, that is God's desire to reward us. Yesterday I took Joey to a basketball class because he wants to play basketball. And... Uh, the coach told them that they'll be learning the fundamentals. Anybody knows what the fundamentals are? Yes? The basics, meaning what they are specifically? Yeah, what? Well, basics, right? This would be the basics of basketball, right? What are the basics? You need to be able to dribble the ball, right? You need to know how to pass the ball. You need to know how to shoot, right? And maybe there's others, right? That's about the limit of my knowledge, right, of the basics. But... Uh, but in the same way, we will look today at the basics. So we'll call it the five fundamentals of running the Christian race. Right? If you like taking notes, I wasn't as well prepared as Don in giving, preparing a sheet of paper. But uh, if you take notes, uh, you can even put them on your cell phone. 
You could <laughs> write down the five fundamentals of the Christian race. We'll talk about those today. And uh, I want to be a little bit careful because we, we understand that they have to come together. They, the passage won't be talking about the Holy Spirit. We understand as believers that we can only do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings everything together. And yet it is good for us to know what our, these fundamentals are, right? We should, we should practice, we should strive, we should have a goal to live the life of faith even as we look to God to provide the power to live it. Right? We want to understand what these are, the fundamentals of living the Christian race. The first one, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I call that one, join a team. Join a team. I have a slide to go with that. If you want to run, uh, some people will run on their own, right? And I have nothing against that. But it's often helpful if you are a runner to join a team, right? Because there's, there's that encouragement you're getting, right, from the other people in your group to keep running, right? If you're running by yourself, eventually you might start slacking. Uh, but if you're with a team, you have to keep up, right? And that kind of sometimes gives you that extra energy to race. And the same thing as believers. Now, this is talking about uh, perhaps the cloud of witnesses in... Uh, in Hebrews 11, talking about believers in the past, but as Don pointed out, it also applies to believers today. It's not the, the faith, the cloud of witness of, of living a life by faith wasn't exclusive to the Old Testament. It's not even uh, exclusive to the New Testament. It's not even for those believers in history. It includes believers today. And uh, I know for myself, uh, my life of faith would be much reduced if I was not fellowshipping at Calvary Bible Chapel or, or another good church, Bible-believing church. Right? It's, it's very helpful for us in our Christian life to be fellowshipping with other believers right, that are like-minded in running the race of faith. Join a team. It says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Right? You cannot run the Christian race by yourself, or at least you will not run it as, as well as you would as part of a group, a church. Fundamental number two, <coughs> lay aside, it says here, let us lay aside every weight. I'd like you to look at this guy. How many weights is he carrying? None. None. <laughs> right. I imagine, you know, the suit he's wearing is probably weighing less than a pound. And uh, what? Ounces. Ounces, yeah. You know, his shoes, you know, you can tell there's not much on them rather, rather than providing some traction, right? So he's not burning his own skin on the track. Right? He's, he's all focused on that one goal of winning the race. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do if we want to run the race well. I had my review at work this, uh, this week. I don't know how many of you get reviews at your work. I understand that uh, our brother Stephen got recognized at his work and got to, I uh, got to Hawaii. I didn't get to go to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
I imagine I could get better reviews at work if I worked harder at work. There's people at my job that put in 60, 70 hours a week. And uh, I could do that too. And I could probably get better, better reviews if I did that. Now, I got a fine review. I'm not complaining. Um, but I wasn't considered exemplary. <clears throat> the problem is if we, if we live to gain the awards and recognition of this world, then we're not living out for God. Right? You can't do both at the same time. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? You cannot seek the things of this world if you want to run the race of faith. Fundamental number three. He says, uh, right after, let us lay aside the weight, he said, every weight says, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. I call that one, that fundamental, watch where you step. Right? Imagine if you're a runner, you know, you're careful not to put your foot in a pothole, right? Or, or a stone or something that'll trip you, right? What if you saw that? on the racetrack. Would you step on that? <laughs> you wouldn't, right? Because that would, that you would hamper your run. Right? You're not going to be able to run as effectively once that thing closes on your foot. And here it warns us of the sin which so easily ensnares us. A sin is a snare. It's something that captures us. Right? It breaks our fellowship with God. It prevents us from effectively running the race of faith after God. We sometimes use the word besetting sin, and that actually comes from this passage. If you have a King James Version, it says the sin which so easily besets us. And, and people recognize that uh, we all have areas in our life in which we are vulnerable to sin, right? I, mine is not the same as yours, right? You have something that might trip you up, and it won't trip me up. I have things that trip me up. They may not trip yours up. One of mine uh, is, or used to be, uh, probably would still be, if I allowed it to be, was playing computer games. Now, computer games are not necessarily bad in themselves, right? But uh, if you get kind of glued and stuck to it, right, and, you know, it's midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and you're still playing the game instead of getting a good night's sleep so you could go to work, or your wife and your kids need you and you're still doing it, that's when it becomes sin, right? And uh, it says, let us lay aside. We need to actively remove these things from our life. Watch out as we're running the race not to step in them. And so I found I needed to remove the computer game from my computer. Right? As long as it was there, it was a temptation. Right? In the same way, you know your weaknesses, and you need to steer away from them. Right? I know if I step there, if I step there, I'm going to get caught. Right? 
you know, a deer wouldn't step in one of those, right? If it saw it and it understood what it would do to them. In the same way, you need to be careful. I'm weak here, I'm weak there, I'm not going to go near. I'm going to keep to the safe path. That was fundamental number three. Fundamental number four. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, let's say I was a runner, right? And uh, I wasn't expecting to be running hurdles. I've never trained on hurdles. You know, I was there for the 400-meter race without hurdles. And I get to that first hurdle, and I'm like, what is that doing in my path? Right? And I'm saying, I must be in the wrong race. And I step off the field. Right? And there ends your race. That's what can happen to us as believers, especially as new believers. We join the race. I believe in the Lord Jesus. Right? And we step on, and we're acting by faith, and bang, a trial hits us. And like, whoa, if I'm following God, why did I just run into this style? There must be something wrong here. And they leave the race. Right? Instead, we need to recognize, no, trials are part of the Christian life. Right? Uh, it says this in James, but brethren, count at all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word translated here endurance in the Greek is a cheerful or hopeful endurance. And in James it says, count it all joy. We need to recognize that trials are part of the Christian life. God set them there on purpose. And it even tells us here one of the reasons for them is to, is to help us grow as Christians, right? If I was just running the race and from here to heaven I would run into no difficulties, I would not grow in my character as a Christian, right? But as God places trials and I jump over it and he places another and I jump over it, I become stronger as a Christian. I am growing in my character, right? And God says that that's valuable, that's precious, uh, there's other reasons in the scripture for trials. They provide a witness to the world of the reality of Christ. If I tell people I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and everything is going well in my life, they could well say, as Satan said of Job, well, no wonder he believes in you and follows you. Look, you blessed him. You said uh, this shield of protection around you. Of course he loves you because you're giving him everything. Right? And, but when the trials came into Job's life, then you saw the genuineness of his faith in God. He held on faithfully to God through those trials. And the same thing in our, in our lives, when we are holding on to Christ and to our faith through trials, now there is a genuine evidence in our lives to our faith, a genuine evidence of Christ, right? And now people <coughs> will ask, and he tells us to be ready when anyone asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, right, will only come through trials. And uh, in First Peter, it also tells us that our trials or our faith 
through trials is giving God the glory. God is glorified in our perseverance. And so there's good reason for these trials, and therefore when we come to the trials, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be discouraged, we should accept that this is from God. Now, it's not always easy if you put the picture up again. Sorry. You know, we don't always <coughs> jump with flying colors over the trials in our lives. Um, a week ago, I was uh, driving my car, and, uh, and the little light turns on that I've never seen before. So I pull over because I don't know what it is. I open the car manual, and it says, you know, the car knows that there's a problem. You need to know to go to your mechanic. And so I go to my mechanic, and my mechanic says, well, you know, that will be uh, $120 to uh, find out what's wrong. I guess they plug a computer into your car or car, your car cable, and, uh, and it gives an error, right? Okay, your problem is in the EVAP system. Some of you are mechanics know what that means. I don't know what it means. All right, so what next? Well, it'll be $180 to uh, fill up your, your, your EVAP system with smoke. And we'll see that's where the smoke comes out, and that's where the leak is. And that's when we'll know what it'll cost to fix your car. Like, all right. <laughs> it's one of those. So <clears throat> I get a call the next morning, and they said, good news, we found what was wrong with your car. And uh, it'll cost you $500 to fix the problem that made the light go on in your car. But uh, we also found something else wrong with your car. Uh, there's a leak in the, in the engine, an oil leak in the engine. It'll cost you $1,100 to fix it. And uh, you know, that leak kind of contaminated all the fluids. So we have to change those. That's another $500. So, you know, a $2,000 bill hits me out of nowhere. And, you know, I was stumbling. I was like that guy over there, you know, not quite making it over the hurdle. Um, but, uh, but it's okay. You know, it's okay to stumble. You get up. You get up and you get back on the track and you keep running until the next one hits you. And that's okay because the Lord rejoices, right, whenever we put our faith in him in practice. Lord, you know what's going on. And uh, he provides. Fundamental number five looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I call it follow your captain. Follow your captain. In soccer, There'll be one person on the field from each team that would have a band around his arm, right? You know what that means? It means he's the captain. <laughs> I understand in uh, basketball they have uh, the point guards, uh, and I could be wrong because I'm not, I'm not perfect. I, my knowledge of basketball is limited, but I understand he's kind of the guy who, who kind of decides what's going to happen with the ball, right? He's going to decide who he you know, it passes it to, whether he just dribbles it, whether he shoots, right? He's kind of the guy calling the shots. So it is in the Christian race, there is one captain. The word author here is also translated captain. And the point is, he's the person we have to follow. 
looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If, um, so I'm kind of skipping here, but uh, if you were running a race uh, or in a group, there's a person in the front, right? And you want to follow them because they know where to step, right? They know where the race is going. And uh, same thing with Jesus. He shows us the way of how it is we are to run the Christian faith. If we want to know how to run the faith, faith, the race, if we want to run the race well, we have to follow one person, and that's the Lord Jesus. What example did the Lord Jesus give us? Well, that's why we have the four Gospels, right? So that's something you can obviously study as well as I. Uh, I picked... uh, Two, and the passage in front of us brings us another one, so we'll look at those uh, three as an example of the Lord Jesus running the race. The first one is that he left behind worldly possessions. I think we talked about that already a little bit. It says, Then a certain scribe came to him, came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now Jesus used to have a job. Right? He was a carpenter. By trade, he followed his father's profession. He was taught by his father. And that was the expectation that Jesus provides for himself and even for his family. He may have provided for his mother and maybe younger siblings after his father passed away. We don't know exactly what age his father passed away. But uh, there he would have had a house in Nazareth. And uh, his, his uh, job, uh, doubtlessly, placed food on the table. Uh, and, and he was provided for, right? But then the call came. The time has come. Uh, John the Baptist was baptizing, and Jesus knew what he needed to do, and he left all that, right? No longer having a certainty of abundance of food. He was hungry, and he was thirsty, right? Um, and it says in this passage... He didn't have a place to lay his head. Probably he slept often on the ground. Right? Jesus was willing to leave all worldly comforts. Second, Jesus left his worldly relations. That's something I appreciate because I experienced it too. I come from a Jewish background, and when I put my faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, I... I was going where my family did not want me to go. And uh, one, one of the members of my family, my grandfather, actually disowned me. Uh, and, and my relationship between them became strained because they felt that I was betraying my heritage, I was betraying them by becoming a believer in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, Uh, There is an event where Jesus is speaking to the multitudes. It says in verse 46, While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, 
his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. So there was Jesus' earthly family, his mother, his brothers. I am sure he loved them dearly. I love my family, right? In spite of the fact that they, uh, they don't love God, they don't follow God. And yet I still love them. Jesus loved his family. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And often we look at this passage <laughs> as an encouragement because Jesus identifies himself with us. He's saying we're his family. That's a wonderful thing for us. But there was the pain of the separation from his earthly relations. Jesus was willing to put his earthly relations at, at a second priority to what God was calling him to do. And there was pain involved in that. Third, and that example for us comes from this passage. <clears throat> he says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And there, on top of all the other trials that Jesus had to go through, was the cross at the end of it, where he literally laid down his life. You see, there's a pattern of severing, of letting go of worldly things, letting go of worldly relations, and finally letting go of his own life, letting sinners take him, nail him to a cross, and they'll portray him before the multitudes to mock. Right? The pain of the cross wasn't just a physical pain. It was designed to create an emotional pain. There you would be portrayed by everybody. When we're in pain, often we try to hide it from people. We don't want people to see us cry or see us suffering. We go into a room. We want our privacy when that happens. The cross was designed to exhibit your pain and your shame. And mothers could point you out to their children and see, child, this is why you need to obey me or you'll end up like this man. Right? He was the, the shame, right? the scourge of the people. Right? People looked down to him right? when he was hanging on the cross. And yet, it says in this passage that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And there we are, as we're looking at the race, and Jesus is running the race, and this hurdle comes, and he jumps it, and this hurdle comes, and he jumps it, and the last hurdle is the cross, and he jumps it. Meaning, the cross did not stop Jesus. Right? He despised it. Meaning, he considered it of, of, of little value, or I shouldn't say value, of something 
uh, the shame he was going to experience there as something that should not hinder him from going through it, right? He, he, he saw the value of what he was gaining through suffering the cross to be of far greater value than the suffering he was to experience on the cross. That's what he meant by despised it. Comparing all the good that comes from the cross versus the pain and the shame I'm about to experience, this is not worthy to consider. Let it come. Right? Now we know that uh, Jesus, Jesus did pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We talked about that. Right? It says, you know, Father, if it is your will, let this pass, cup pass for me. Jesus did not enjoy the cross, right? It wasn't a small thing. He suffered every ounce that human suffering can experience on the cross. And beyond it, something we cannot see, right? Experiencing God's wrath and the sins of mankind. The pain and the suffering was great. And the way I, I look at the Garden of Gethsemane, that was kind of a checkpoint, right? Jesus comes to that point, and he's pouring out his soul to the Father, and he's letting the Father know just how he feels about the cross, how terrible it is. But once God's will is confirmed and God says, yes, I know, and this is what I want you to do, Jesus goes up, and you never see him slow down for you know, a fraction of a second. He is set. Okay, this is what my father wants me to do. And he goes through the remainder of the night. He's arrested, and he lets them arrest him. He goes trial before trial. He keeps his mouth shut, never a word of complaint. And even as he is crucified, the only words on his lips is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Right? He went through the cross. And that is, by the way, the same, when it says here, he endured the cross, it's the same Greek word, or at least the same root, as the endurance he's asking us to endure as we run the race that is set before us. Now, Jesus wasn't just the author of our faith. faith. He is also the finisher. What do we mean by that? He finished, right? His race is done. And that's what it says here, that he sat down at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus right now? Where is he? Is he in a grave in, in uh, Jerusalem? No. No. He's risen, right? Is he somewhere walking on the face of the earth? Can we find him somewhere on the earth? No. Where is he? It says here, he is seated at the right hand of God. Right now, Jesus finished. We, brothers and sisters, we are still in the race, right? We're still encountering difficulties. We're still going through trials. But Jesus finished the race, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. And the reason it's telling this to us is because we have God's promise that we too will finish the race and be seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. We can look at him as we're following in his step. We can look at him who finished and see where he's seated and know that just as we were following Jesus here, we will end up in the same place Jesus is today. 
Now, this would be a very bold thing for me to say if it wasn't what the Bible said to. Okay, so let's, uh, we'll finish looking at a few of those verses. John 12, 26, Jesus speaking. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. All right, that's Jesus' words. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And he's saying we will be there with him. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Do we suffer with him? We do, right? As we're running our Christian race here, we go through suffering, right? Just like Jesus went through suffering. We have our trials here. And what does he promise? If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. Brothers and sisters, we need to lift up our eyes to heaven because that is where our place is. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. With him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. God's word. And finally, and appropriately, Revelation chapter 3. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We have a glorious future. <laughs> and uh, we're running a race here on earth that, um, that has eternal value, right? As we live a life of faith. And uh, we have before us the fundamentals, right? Join a group. Travel light. Watch where you step. Expect obstacles and follow your captain. Have a good race. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who indeed showed us how to run the race. We thank you that he gives us the victory, Lord. We, we recognize that by our own strength, we cannot run this uh, race of faith. It's only as you empower us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that the victory is guaranteed as we hold on to our faith in you. We pray that you might uh, grant us all uh, victory over uh, the trials that we're going through 
and uh, help us plan in such a way that you are glorified in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.